0: Welcome, 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 welcome.
1: Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening, and welcome
2: to
0: Discovery. Discovery.
1: Discovery.
3: Listen to Discovery. Discovery. (gasps) Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of
2: fun.
1: Somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now.
3: Now, to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery! Uh, yeah!
4: Welcome to Discovery for another week. I'm Adam Richardson and this time we'll be looking at the negative effects of decaffeinated coffee and indigenous knowledge. But first, here's the Discovery News with Matt Francis.
0: Scientists at Stanford University have developed a digital camera that allows focus and aperture settings to be performed after a photo is taken, allowing the user to take a quick snap and then work out all the little details later. In traditional cameras, low light levels require an open aperture, which reduces how much of the field of view can be in focus. In bright light, however, this would lead to the image being overexposed. However this amazing new camera contains 90,000 extremely thin lenses that record all the information about the incoming light. A computer can then reconstruct an image with the desired focus and aperture settings. As well as taking the stress out of amateur photography, this system has great potential for use in surveillance camera systems. It seems that shoot first and ask questions later will no longer just be the mantra of spaghetti western bad guys and anti-terrorist police. Given the enormous destructive power of hurricanes, displayed most recently in the devastation caused by Rita and Wilma in the US, claims that human intervention could stop or at least severely weaken hurricanes seem pretty far-fetched. However, given the massive damage bills caused by recent events, large-scale expensive countermeasures are now seen to be more feasible, and several possible schemes have been proposed. Some involve covering large tracts of ocean in the storm's path with an oily slick to prevent the warm water evaporating and hence fueling the hurricane, though this has obvious downsides for the environment. Another approach that has been successful in stopping small storm clouds in initial testing is the dropping of tonnes of water-absorbing powder, normally used to soak up oil from leaky cars. This powder falls through the damp clouds in the storm, drying them out and robbing the hurricane of power. In addition, the cold, wet powder granules eventually hit the ocean under the hurricane, which helps to cool the waters and further reduce evaporation. Researchers in the US have recently produced a laptop computer that costs a mere $100 US each to produce. They're intended to be supplied to children in poor countries and underprivileged areas of more affluent countries. This amazing machine also comes with a hand crank that can be used as a power source in places where electricity is inaccessible. Featuring wireless networking and a respectable 500MHz processor, the laptop runs on the freely available Linux operating system. large scale production is set to begin soon, with several companies bidding for the resu- rights, but Brazil, Thailand, Egypt and Nigeria are already looking at buying at least 1 million of them to be supplied to children free, free of charge by March next year.
4: You're listening to Discovery, the national science show. Here on Discovery, our drug of choice to get through the long hours of journalistic research is coffee. Now, there are some folk who say that the caffeine in coffee is bad news, as they order their decaf mocha frappe latte chino. But recent research suggests that decaffeinated cuppa may not be quite so good for you. Chris?
3: Well, i got to say that coffee is my drug of choice. I I always enjoy a really good, strong cup of coffee in the morning, maybe another one in the afternoon to keep me going. But I I was a bit disturbed to find that in this week's New Scientist, there was an article which was about decaffeinated coffee not being terribly good for you because I've been relying on the promise of decaf coffee to help me when my addiction gets a bit too strong. So I decided to look into this a little bit more and find out a bit about coffee and caffeine and the decaffeination process to help me understand what the problem is here. So A little bit first about the drug of caffeine. Now, coffee is probably the most commonly known and uh, and widely talked about source of caffeine. But of course, caffeine is found in all sorts of places. Caffeine is found not just in coffee, but also in tea. In fact, there's a bit of a myth that tea is stronger. Your average cup of tea is stronger than coffee for caffeine. It's not strictly true. In your average cup of uh, of coffee, you get about, uh, let's say, 150 mils of coffee. You're talking around about 85 milligrams of caffeine. In instant coffee, it's a bit less, around about 60 milligrams. I guess it depends on how many heaped tablespoons of, ca- of uh, instant coffee you put in, though. In um, in leaf or bag tea, you've got about 30 milligrams. In instant tea, who would buy instant tea? I don't know. Ugh. It's about 20 milligrams. In hot chocolate, you've only got about four milligrams. And in a decaf cup of coffee, you've got about three milligrams. So decaf coffee is around about the same as a hot chocolate. Now, the chemical caffeine is also known as 137-trimethylxanthine, which is probably why they call it caffeine. And it's one of a group of chemicals that does nice things to the brain. It helps the brain sort of do some tasks well, other tasks not so well. But it's in there also with chemicals like theobromine, which is one that some of you may have heard of in relation to chocolate. That's one of the nice happy pleasure center stimulating drugs in chocolate. But caffeine's one of these groups of chemicals. Now, once you've had a cup of coffee, You might get a bit of a buzz from it fairly quickly, but it also hangs around in your system for a very long time. And they talk about, it's a little bit like radioactivity. Caffeine's got a half-life. In other words, after a certain period of time, half of that caffeine will still be around. And the statistics that i found are that in young and elderly men, the half-life of caffeine in the blood is about three to four hours, so several hours after you've had a cup, you've still got half of that caffeine kicking around in your blood. Now, if you're a newborn infant, and its I'd, I'd love to see the research that they've done this on. How did they get this one past the ethics committee? In a newborn infant, it's about 80 hours. So if you give your newborn a cup of coffee, three days later, they're still suffering from the caffeine effect. In premature infants, that goes up to 100 hours. Why you'd be giving a premature kitty a cup of coffee? I don't know. Let's not even go there. In smokers, the half-life's reduced. So if you're a smoker, the effects of a cup of coffee will go away faster. Maybe that's because if you're a smoker, you're a bit more used to having all these things kicking around in your system anyway. So if you're having a cup of coffee, it's going to stick around for a while. It's an interesting drug And it does all sorts of interesting things to you. Now, I went to try to find out what goes on when you have a cup of coffee. One of the big things, of course, is mental alertness. And I found a a bunch of papers at a place called coffeescience.org. There is a paper called Low-Dose Repeated Caffeine Administration for Circadian-Phase-Dependent Performance Degradation During Extended Wakefulness, which is another way of saying a cuppa to keep you awake when cramming for exams. There was another called Caffeine Strengthens Action Monitoring, Evidence from the Error-Related Negativity, which is another way of saying a cuppa to stop you screwing up at work. Caffeine keeps you awake. But some other research at the Coffee Science Information Centre is coffee and Parkinson's disease. Apparently, there's about a one-third less chance of developing Parkinson's Parkinson's disease if you drink coffee than if you don't. So coffee could be good for you. But the paper which was really throwing me for a loop was this one about decaf coffee. Everyone who talks about the bad effects of coffee, the dehydration, the, the, the stimulation, all of this sort of thing, always says decaf coffee has got to be better for you. Well, there's this new bit of research that's come out that said maybe not. Decaf coffee drinkers apparently get higher levels of fatty acids in the blood, which um, can increase their chances of heart disease. They realize that the reason for this is that when you decaffeinate coffee, you actually take a lot of the flavor out as well, all the chemicals that give you the flavor. And so decaf coffee is usually made from a robuster coffee bean, a stronger coffee bean. Coffee is an oily substance, and so if you've got stronger flavoured coffee, you've got more oils, more fatty acids, which could mean higher blood cholesterol, which could mean higher chances of heart disease. So if you're drinking lots of cups of decaffeinated coffee and you're not doing much exercise, this could be a bit of a problem. So let that be a warning to you if you're out there trying to improve
4: your health. Cut down on the
3: decaf, yeah?
4: Chris Stewart there, committed caffeine addict on the pluses and minuses of a good cuppa. You're listening to Discovery. That was Scissors Paper Rock by Architecture in Helsinki. You're listening to Discovery. And now Phil Durley is speaking with anthropologist Kirk Huffman about indigenous knowledge. Phil?
2: I'm speaking with Kirk Huffman, who is a research associate at the Australian Museum and a bigwig in museums across the Pacific, such as Tahiti and Vanuatu. He's an anthropologist. So tell me a little bit about what you study, Kirk.
1: Uh, My emphasis over the last 30 years or so has been working with uh, traditionally orientated societies, uh, particularly in the Pacific, uh, where traditional rituals and traditional knowledge is still uh, respected.
2: Uh, So traditional knowledge is slipping away from us, you think? Uh,
1: In some areas, yes. In some areas, no. There's, there's a rather interesting thing. It's one of the things that one realises more and more that uh, most people in the modern world uh, actually have very little idea about the worldwide situation with traditional societies. Huh? Uh, most people sort of tend to assume, well, oh, everybody has electricity nowadays, everybody has access to computers, etc., 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 and this is not actually
2: true. So, so what are the percentages?
1: <laughs> if you take the situation about 5 or 6 years ago is that if you take the whole world as one village containing 100 only 100 people only one person in that village would have access to a computer um so okay you've got the modern world where you know these all these modern things happen and there's radio and tv and computers and things like that but most people in that society tend to forget that there are six, approximately 6,000 different languages, each with their own culture, around the world today. There's 6,000 living languages. And two-thirds of those languages and cultures are actually the languages and cultures of surviving traditional small-scale societies, where the languages are not written languages. These
2: are really? So you're talking about groups of... Uh, just a few thousand very often uh, some of these societies are very small in population
1: numbers but they have the monopoly on the number of languages and cultures around the world and if you take the amount of the world's knowledge uh, all stacked into one basket
2: they actually have two-thirds of that basket Of but what about the internet <laughs> <laughs> yes. so really what kind of knowledge are we talking about Oh, traditional
1: uh, history, traditional medicine, traditional ritual, traditional, you know, what modern people might say is myths and legends, but the thing is, because those those words, myths and legends, are actually English words, and they don't necessarily always translate exactly what the, the words are in the uh, traditional languages, uh, what people have to realize is that many of these traditional myths and legends are believed in very, very strongly by the members of these traditional societies that actually only constitute a minimal percentage of the world's population. I mean, if you count them around the world today, numbers vary between only 50 to 150 million, spread through about, probably about 80 different countries around the world. But there's actually quite a number of these societies that have not yet had the, in inverted commas, honour of being contacted by the outside
2: world yet. So there are still uncontacted societies out there. All you explorers put on your pith helmet. (laughs) No, there are a diminishing number of these societies uh,
1: around the world. Uh, For example, on the island of New Guinea, there's probably one or two groups like this you know, contacted by the first for the first time by members of the so-called outside world every year. But as the years go by, these groups are getting smaller and smaller. In Western, the Western Amazon basin, you've still got a rather vast area where estimates at the moment range from anything between tw- the lowest estimate is twelve, the highest estimate is fifty-five uncontacted groups of peoples. In, in that in that
2: area, at that's the amazing. But and those people would have a lot of specific knowledge about their area, wouldn't they?
1: Well, their languages very often are are as complex as
2: English or French or German or. But I mean specifically about you know plants or fauna and whatever else is around in that area.
1: Their, their knowledge would be very profound, very very detailed. They've all of these societies in areas like those those groups in say Western Amazonia will have very very detailed uh, knowledge of, for, of uh, their environment for use in traditional medicines and things like that in fact they're, they're they are scientists many of them they're, they're, they're traditional doctors are you know, they've been around for an awful long time they're not sort of new cultures eh? so it's thanks
2: to thanks to you that we're saving a bit of that stuff or, I mean is that what you see your role
1: well one of the things that we try and do is we, we try and work with these traditional societies. My my personal concern is to try and help in any way possible to ensure that these kind of societies survive. To help to give them and their descendants a sense of identity in a in a rapidly changing world, because many of these societies uh, are really worthy of surviving because they've been around for so long. They know what they know. Uh, very often a lot more about (laughs) climate change and things like that than uh, some of the people in the modern world. eh?
2: Yeah, I think you can certainly say that. Well, thanks for your time today, Kirk, and we'll catch up with you again soon and uh, explore some
4: cultural knowledge. Right here. Okay, Phil, thanks. That was Phil Dooley with Kirk Huffman. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more on Indigenous Know-How.
3: Did you know that humans and bananas share over 50% of their DNA? Discovery. Proud to be just a bunch of mutant banana people.
4: And finally, with the news that didn't make the news, here's Matt. Yeah, well, this is uh, a little bit of
0: information I picked up on the New Scientist uh, website this afternoon. Um, And there was some interesting research that's gone into the addictive qualities of computer games. Um, So what they've found is that... uh, People who play a lot of computer games are basically giving the same kind of responses to uh, st- stimuli, so show a picture of um, a screenshot of a computer game to a hardcore gamer, they're showing the same kind of responses as, as a dra- drug addict does to um, sort of something associated with, with their drug habit.
3: Now, I, I saw this on New Scientist, I'm, I'm assuming we're not talking about Pac-Man here, because that's the last computer game I played, it's showing my age.
0: No, no, not Pac-Man. Um, it's interesting, actually, because people within the games community have, have talked for years about games being addictive, um, but this has always had a, a positive connotation. Um, you, know, you want a game to sort of suck you in and, and, and really enjoy it, um, but, it's, but it seems to be recently that these games are getting so addictive and so good that it's um, becoming a bit negative. Indeed, the, there was a, a, a very popular game, I'm sure many people would have heard of it, which is um, EverQuest, online game. It was actually nicknamed Evercrack. Um, because of its addictive qualities, by the, by the people that played it. So
5: that's that's the one where it's uh, it's uh, they, they call it a massively multiplayer. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's the one. So people, you know, can log on and, and you know it's dungeons and dragons, yeah, fantasy. You
5: pay, but people pay upwards. I think it's around about fifteen bucks a month yep. for the privilege of so, getting on there.
0: So what's the addictive
3: qualities of this game? Like why why is it so addictive?
0: Well, the kind of responses that, that researchers have found to people playing the computer games, I mean, there's, there's conscious feelings like cravings to play the game and, and withdrawal kind of feelings um, when sort of not um, you know playing the game for for a, for a bit of time. Um, but there's also, as well as like the, the conscious things, there's also subconscious response. There's um, physical reflex uh, responses in uh, they can look at um, the way eyes move uh, and things like that when when you show a picture. Um, and so these sort of things can't be sort of faked or, or, or a conscious thing. They're actually a subconscious um, sign of, of addiction within the brain. So um, I'm I'm not sure of the, the the qualities themselves of, of the games that, that are doing this, but um.
3: it must be surely something to do with when you when you when you're involved in it. It's the excitement. It's the adrenaline levels. What, what I releasing is. chemicals in the brain, and your brain's getting hooked on that high level of stimulation.
5: These these types of games, I think, with these these massive multiplayer games, I think it's. When you're actually shooting someone or killing someone, you're actually killing a person on the other end, oh, their they're, they're right. virtual person. and so, so it's
3: not like you're playing against the computer. It's no. like you're playing against other you're people, playing and a, you're killing them. You're
5: playing way. an actual person, and so when you kill someone on the other side of the world, it's going,
3: Bugger! That's kind of scary, isn't it?
5: It is, but these, these games are, are very hugely getting bigger and bigger, these types of multiplayer games where you actually play against... Someone else.
3: geez it it didn't happen in the day of Pac-Man.
5: No, Pac-Man never made it to um to multiplayer. <laughs> uh. hmm,
0: but I think in, inherently these things are. I mean, they're they're built in. Obviously, by the you know the games manufacturers want people to keep keep playing their product. And I guess it's just like anything else, like advertising or anything. You know, the art develops over time, and to the point that these 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 games no longer so much the innocent sort of you know Pac-Man and Pong and and so on, but they're actually you know designed over the years and perfected to the state where, where they are, such a obviously enjoyable experience for people.
5: But another interesting analogy I can I can draw from being addicted to computer games is being addicted to playing slot machines, being addicted to poker machines and yeah. down your RSL. Yeah. Because when you think about it, they're both very, very goal oriented endeavors. Mm. And when you initially start playing them, when you start playing a poker machine, you usually have a little win. You might win a dollar or two. When you're playing a computer game, they're they're designed so you can you can make small achievable goals at the start. Right. And right. build yourself up to winning so the you're jackpot. Always, you're getting always looking
3: to for that for that next hit of that's right. excitement. It doesn't and, matter whether it's coins falling down through the through the machine or if it's blowing the head off some guy over in Sweden. That's right. It could be just um,
5: you just almost uh, there and almost not quite there, mm.
0: but the um, the games makers have, have really cottoned on to the the idea that I mean, people are getting aware that uh, games are addictive. For instance, there was a recent game in Civilization series, um, which actually promoted itself um, through a spoof website, which was Civilization Anonymous.
4: that's it for this week's edition of Discovery. If you'd like some more information on any of our stories this week, you can contact us on discovery at 2 Featuring on this week's show were Matt Francis, Chris Stewart and Phil Dooley. Discovery was produced by Matt Clark in the studios of 2 ser Sydney. We're also broadcast right across Australia via the Community Radio Network and right across the world via our podcast, which you can find at feeds.feedburner.com slash discoveryradio. That's feeds.feedburner.com discoveryradio discovery radio. I'm Adam Richardson, and I hope to see you back here next week for another edition of Discovery.